My name is Jeffrey Sidoris, and this is Iteration 30. Tomorrow would have been my mom's 74th birthday. And while not a day goes by that I don't miss her, I'm grateful for the life that I was allowed to share with her. She was generous and kind, compassionate, and the most unconditionally loving person I've ever met. She always encouraged me to embrace the quirky, creative side of myself and insisted that following my passion meant not holding back, always giving 100%. As a child, mom was a dancer. She and her brother Jerry even appeared on the Jack Parr show together. A few years after, Jerry decided that dancing was for sissies. Ultimately, life got in the way, and my mom eventually gave it up too. But while life as a professional dancer wasn't in the cards for her, music was still an important part of her life. Even after I came along, our house was always filled with music, mostly Motown. I grew up on a steady musical diet of artists like Diana Ross, Stevie Wonder, Gladys Knight, Marvin Gaye, and the Jackson Five. But when she wasn't grooving to sounds coming out of Hitsville, USA, she was listening to Elvis. My mom was a huge fan of Elvis Presley, and I'm not just talking about his music. I'm talking sit for hours in a car outside his house hoping to catch a glimpse of the man himself kind of fan. She and my dad saw him live several times in Las Vegas, including the show on July 31st, 1969 at the International Hotel, a performance Rolling Stone magazine called Supernatural, and one that Elvis himself chased for the rest of his life. She loved to tell the story of one particular show where she not only met, but also kissed the king. She and her friend Carol went to Vegas for the weekend to see Elvis at the International. They were in the hotel bar after the show, and a man came up to them and introduced himself as Elvis's personal valet. He asked if they'd like to come to a party to meet Elvis. What do we have to do to you first, my mom asked. He assured her that it was all on the level, but she was still skeptical. Her friend Carol told her that if it was legit and she ruined her chance to meet Elvis, that she would take her out to the parking lot and beat her senseless. So, up to the penthouse they went. In those days, Elvis took over the top two floors of the International in order to accommodate his band and entourage, the Memphis Mafia. The party was in a banquet room, and while Carol mingled, Mom sat down at the end of a large table. As she tells it, about 20 minutes later, he arrived. The king of rock and roll himself dressed in a blue jumpsuit, white neck scarf, and carrying a bottle of water. He made his way through the room making small talk with the guests before suddenly just appearing right in front of her. He put one foot up on the cushion of the barrel chair at the head of the table and introduced himself. He was the prettiest man I ever saw, Mom would say, and she made sure to say it exactly that way whenever she told the story. My mom never could remember exactly what they talked about, but she did remember the kiss. We talked for about 15 minutes or so, she would recall. Then he just leaned in and kissed me on the lips. He thanked me for coming and went back to the party. Warhol said, in the future, everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes. While my mom was never famous, she did spend 15 minutes gazing into the eyes of the most famous rock and roll star the world would ever know. A memory that she would cherish for the rest of her life. I never really heard anyone talk about Elvis the way my mom did until I started Bruce Springsteen's autobiography, Born to Run. In Chapter 7, the boss waxes poetic about the king and the profound effect Elvis's first appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show had on him. It was all there in his eyes, his face, he wrote, the face of a Saturday night jukebox Dionysus. 
Elvis, both the man and the myth behind him, became a template of sorts for how Bruce approached his music. He even pays tribute to Elvis on the album cover of Born to Run. If you look closely, you can see Bruce wearing a badge from a New York-area Elvis Presley fan club called the King's Court. Elvis's great act of love rocked the country and was an early echo of the civil rights movement, Springsteen wrote. He was a showman, an entertainer, an imaginer of worlds, an unbelievable success, an embarrassing failure, and a fount of modern action and ideas. Ideas that would soon change the shape and future of the nation. Ideas whose time had come that challenged us to decide if we would all be attending a funeral of national destruction and decline, or dancing while birthing the next part of the American story. I don't know what his thoughts were on race. I don't know whether he thought about the broader implications of his actions. I do know this is what he did. Lived a life that he was driven to live and brought forth the truth that was within him and the possibilities within us. How many of us can say that? That we committed all of ourselves to something? As much as I want to, or at least I'm tempted to romanticize the idea of devoting oneself completely to a project, or spend a lifetime singularly focused on building a body of work and hold that up as something that all creatives should aspire to, there's a dark side to pouring oneself so completely into one's passion. Look at Richard Avedon. On one hand, he's considered one of the greatest, most influential photographers of all time, and famously also one of the most driven. But all of that ambition and drive came with a cost, namely a relationship with his family. In a 1999 interview with Charlie Rose, Avedon was asked if he had any regrets. Really, he says. I think that when you work as I have worked, there's something that I didn't do successfully, and that's my family life. Marriage. I don't believe you can do it all. While Avedon acknowledges and genuinely feels the regret, if given the chance to do it again, I think he would do it exactly the same way. For Avedon, the trade-off was worth it. His work and all that came with it consumed him. He felt that he had to work every day in order to get better, and getting better and making a body of work was the prime mover for more than six decades regardless of the collateral damage. Whether it's a conscious choice or just the way I'm wired, I can't seem to maintain that level of blinders-on, ignore-everything-else-around-me, laser-sharp focus. In fact, my longest long-term project has been on taking pictures, which we've recently decided to end after more than six years of weekly episodes. As much as I've loved doing OTP and I'm grateful for how it's changed and enriched my life, I've reached a point where I'm not only inspired by the work of others, regardless of the discipline or media, their inspiration becomes fuel propelling me to the next project or conversation. I want and maybe even need the conversations to extend beyond photography, and I feel like I have to let one chapter end before I can fully commit to bringing the next one to life. Change is always difficult. But over the past three years, I've made some of the most dramatic changes of my adult life, and I'm happier, healthier, and more creatively challenged and fulfilled than I ever have been. A friend of mine back in California used to say, love what you do, love it completely, but keep your priorities straight. Family, friends, work, and always in that order. Don't forget to check the show notes for links to a few of the things that have caught my eye recently. Uh, including a link to the 1999 Charlie Rose interview with Richard Avedon that I referenced. And if you enjoy that, there's a terrific documentary about Avedon called Darkness and Light that I'll also include a link to. The artist Christo has just unveiled his latest installation. It's called the London Mastaba, and it's a 600-ton pyramid made of brightly painted 55-gallon drums. And the whole gigantic thing is floating in Serpentine Lake in London. 
I know I'm a little late to the game on this one, but if you want to either deepen or broaden your musical knowledge, check out allmusic.com. Uh, it's an incredible resource that has not only album reviews, but also shows connections between similar artists and offers recommendations for the best albums to listen to within a given artist's discography. Uh, there's even a, a feature that uh, lets you select an album based on your current mood. So if you're feeling ironic, check out Elvis Costello's Trust, or Blur's Modern Life is Rubbish, or David Bowie's Aladdin Sane, which is a terrific record, by the way. Subscribe to Iterations in your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to connect with me, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Jeffrey Sedoris. That's J-E-F-F-E-R-Y-S-A-D-D-O-R-I-S. Uh, you can check out my book, Photography by the Letter, available as both a paperback and a downloadable ebook at photographybytheletter.com. I'll be back in a couple weeks with another iteration, and I hope you'll join me. Until then, thanks very much for your time. I appreciate you listening, and I'll talk to you on the next one. Music